Today's message, not by any plan of mine, but just by coincidence, will tie into serving. The title of today's message is Serving Requires Sacrifice. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, if you want to turn there. Last week, we looked at how Jesus sees people, how Jesus sees people versus how we see people, and uh, trying to ensure that we do see others the same way that Christ would. Where the Pharisees saw tax collectors and sinners, we were able to see that Jesus saw patients in need of a physician by his own words. And we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan last week where Jesus took the focus off of the man in need and he placed the, focus, he placed the attention on the individuals who had the opportunity to provide for that need. Jesus told of a man who had been attacked, beaten, robbed, and left half dead. And in that parable, we saw that a priest and a Levite, both brethren to that man, walked by, actually went out of their way to avoid helping him. But a Samaritan, who most would consider an enemy, had compassion on the man. And we're told he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. And that was out of Luke chapter 10. Now the lawyer that was asking Jesus questions had asked the question, Who is my neighbor? In other words, what the lawyer was asking is, who do I need to love? Who is to be the receiver of the love? But what we saw is after that parable was told, Jesus turned that question around. And his question was, who was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? In other words, who is doing the love and who is the giving, giver of the love? The difference in these two questions really highlights the difference in a worldly view, which is what the lawyer was operating from, which was part of what was causing his issue and why he was needing to ask these questions. It shows the difference between the worldly view and a Christian perspective, meaning how Jesus viewed others. The Samaritan loved like Jesus does. No one had to ask the Samaritan to help. He did not hesitate to go out of his way to help. He loved the man sacrificially. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today is that sacrifice. The Samaritan provided for immediate needs, the oil, the wine, and the bandages. The Samaritan transported him for more attention he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, which provided food, lodging, and rest for the man. The Samaritan provided for healing. He provided financially to care for the man for several weeks. All this was sacrificial loving. This kind of love, a love driven by compassion for others, others including our enemies, is a love that only comes through our relationship with Jesus. Now that's all a recap of last week. This week, we want to look at Jesus teaching the disciples about serving. So here in Mark chapter 8, we'll start in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked the disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Now remember when Jesus is asking these questions, I explained last week, he's a teacher. Jesus loved to teach and it was important that he taught. So he always asked a question. So in this question, there's a reason he's asking it. And this is an important question. If we just stop and think about the question that he asked. For believers, how would they answer this question today? Many who, profess to be Christian, many who profess to be Christians know who Jesus is. And some of the answers would be the Son of Man, the, I'm sorry, the Son of God, the Messiah, or the Christ. And all those are accurate answers. But do they know Him personally is the question. And we'll circle back to that. Unbelievers, how would unbelievers answer that question? Is who do men say that I am about Jesus? Unbelievers often refer to Jesus as a good man, a prophet, or even a fictional character. 
Some pass off the Bible as just being a work of fiction. Remember that Jesus is, among other things, a teacher. So he's asking these questions to find out exactly what his students know in this case. So let's see how the disciples respond. In verse 28, the disciples answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So that's three interesting answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, and prophet, or a prophet. Now anybody that thought Jesus was John the Baptist didn't know a whole lot about Jesus or John the Baptist for that matter. I mean, both of these guys lived at the same time, right? Their lives overlapped. Now we talked in chapel service this morning. There are some things they had in common though. What are some of the things that Jesus and John the Baptist would have had in common would have been their message? You know, the message that they were sharing both contradicted what was going on at the time, the teachings of the religious leaders at that time. It both pointed to a need to repent from sins and be saved. So the message was the same. So that's kind of good that they saw that connection. But they had very different roles. Jesus' role ultimately was to become the sacrifice for our sins. John the Baptist's role in his own words was to pave the way for Christ's coming. He was just there to open the door and point to Jesus for the work that he was about to do. But the answer of John the Baptist and Elijah, they had a lot of things in similar too. They were both what you could consider national reformers. They often stood up to the leadership of their time and really challenged the teaching of the leaders and the rulers. They encouraged a life much more focused on God than they did the rulers of the time. Now in verse 29, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, But who do you say that I am? To which Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Now this is a, an important point to stop and look at. Why would Jesus ask this question, who do you say that I am? See, when it comes to the time we meet Jesus in heaven, it doesn't matter who everybody else says he is. It matters who you have said he is. It becomes a very personal question. When it comes to Jesus, the most important factor about Jesus is the personal factor, you could call it. It's not contingent upon anyone else's relationship with Jesus. It comes down to your relationship with Jesus. I was talking with Bruce a while back about some of the ministry we do outside the walls here. And one of the comments he made was that when we're going out witnessing that we often ask people if they're Christians. And of course we're in the South, so most people say yes. And have done a lot of personal witnessing. I, I can, that was what I found. And that always bothered me because how do you really help people if they already recognize that they don't have a need of a help, right? It's hard to help somebody who says, I don't need help. One of the ways that I handled that, and I was telling Bruce that I stopped asking people if they were a Christian. The question I prefer to ask, and to this day prefer to ask is, what is your relationship with Jesus like? Because that changes the picture, and it really doesn't matter who you're talking to. It's not a yes or no question. One, that requires some thought. And you may have been thinking when I said it, please don't ask me that question. <laughs> but it's something that we all need to think through on a regular basis. We need to take, take inventory of what our relationship with Jesus is like. We need to evaluate it because he has a special interest in that. I mean, he laid down his life for that relationship. It's important that we consider that. You know, what is your relationship with Jesus like? If a person doesn't have a relationship, that opens up the door to share the gospel with them. If that person tells you that they got saved, but they're not walking with the Lord, and they're really having some issues and struggles, that's a great opportunity to encourage a fellow brother or sister. Those are always valuable opportunities in and of themselves that are not to be missed. If a person's doing well, sometimes you ask that question and you walk away being encouraged. You know, God, God's plans are not always our plans, right? Sometimes we go to encourage somebody and we walk away feeling that we were the ones that were blessed. 
But if you ask that question, what is your relationship with Jesus like? It opens the door to a great conversation, no matter who you're asking. Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? David Guzik commented on this, that Jesus was much more than John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet. He was more than a national reformer, more than a miracle worker, more than a prophet. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And those were titles that the people at the time were looking for. Another commentator wrote, Calling Jesus the Messiah was right on the mark, but easily misunderstood. And he goes on to explain, In the thinking of most people in Jesus' day, the Messiah was a political and national superman. Toward the close of the Old Testament period, the word anointed assumed a special meaning. It denoted the ideal, the ideal king anointed and empowered by God to deliver his people and establish his righteous kingdom. See, as often is in the human way, we're looking for an immediate and a complete solution to whatever problem lies before us. We all want God to just wave his hand and all of our problems just to magically fade away, right? Just to fade off into the sunset, disappear, and no longer exist. And that's what the people and the religious leaders, the, even the disciples, were looking for when Jesus did come on the scene. As he's going around teaching, they kept looking forward to that day where he was going to overthrow the government and he was going to set, establish his rule. He was going to take over his king. And that will happen, but we've got a lot of pages in our Bible between Mark and Revelation, right? And a lot of years of history represented there that have to happen. Why is that so long? Why is that such a lengthy time period? Well, one of the reasons is God's focus tends to be more on a personal level. God's work in nations is done by working in His people within those nations. How does God work in businesses? He works within the individuals that work there. How does God work within families? With one individual at a time. Within churches, the same. One individual at a time. He works in each one of us differently, at a different speed, in a different place, with a different calling. God builds each of these by working in the lives of people that make up the nations, the businesses, the families, the churches, and especially the church, which will become the bride. Remember the quote from last week from Mahatma Gandhi that I shared, be the change that you wish to see in the world. And that applies here again. You know, God is working in each one of us to make a change in us. That's how he changes the world, one person at a time. And that same scripture that I read last week, this one seems to come back to me every week, no matter where I'm studying. Out of Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. This scripture just keeps coming back because it's what this world needs today. God's calling each one of his people to turn back to him, to turn away from their worldly ways and pursue him because he wants to use each one of us to make a difference in this world. He wants to grow our families. He wants to affect our businesses. He wants our churches to become stronger. And he does that by working through each one of us. God works on a corporate level by working on an individual level through his relationships with individuals. As we look back throughout the Bible, we can see that God did great works through many single individuals. Sounds funny to say, right? Many single individuals. But individually, God used a number of people in great ways. Some of the examples include Moses. Look at the work that God did with Moses in the Bible. With David, even King David did a great work with him. Nehemiah, with Nehemiah, encouraged a group of people and went back to build the wall around Jerusalem. Paul, a great work there. Peter, it's easy to see the work he did in Peter. 
And we can relate to that one often. When we look at his blunder and tripping over his own feet with his own feet in his mouth. And hey, I can relate to that. But he did a great work with Peter. Peter preached what I often refer to as the first presentation of the gospel in the Bible. You know, the first great revival there on the day of Pentecost. And he didn't study. He didn't have a couple of weeks to know he was going to be teaching that day, right? That was off the cuff. How, what would he have done if he'd have had time to study? May have messed it up. I don't know. Let's, let's move a little closer forward in time. How about Billy Graham? What has God accomplished through Billy Graham in this world? What about Chuck Smith? What has God accomplished in Chuck Smith? The list goes on and on. You know, I can bring this even closer. There's a number of people in this church I can look at and name off names of how they've had an impact in this community, in my life, in the lives of you amongst one, one another. Many of those people you're thinking of, and you could probably name the same ones, many of them you probably wouldn't think of because it's behind the scenes work that they're doing that they're not seeing, that are making a difference in this place, even within Calvary Chapel Fellowship in this community. They're doing things that you don't see on Sunday. You don't see them up here. They never stand up here with a microphone. But they're doing a great work that greatly affects this body, greatly makes a difference in the work of the Lord here. Back to our scripture in Mark, in verse 30. Um, it wraps up here with that verse. It says, Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. This is between him and the disciples at this point. It's a lesson just for them. But to get a little more information on this exchange between Peter and Jesus that we're going to need to understand the, the teaching that Jesus is about to offer, we want to look at Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, in this same uh, recollection of history, the same story, we're told Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, for the teacher, we would say Peter got a real gold star here, right? In our analogy we're using as a teacher. Now, we know that the disciples had quite a bit of, we're going to call it friendly competition among themselves, right? I mean, some of the things we saw is they would often discuss who was the greatest, who would be the greatest. We're told numerous times in here who Jesus loved by the disciples themselves. They brought their mother one time to ask who could sit at Jesus' right hand in heaven, who could sit beside him on the throne. We're told who got to the tomb first. It's also recorded who went into the tomb first. So they recorded all these things in their little competition. Now, I'm sure that this praise that Jesus just got from, that Peter just got from Jesus, helped to uh, boost his pride just a little bit in that friendly competition, right? I mean, imagine you just answered one of Jesus' test questions here in front of everybody. And Jesus' response is, Blessed are you, because flesh and blood not, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I can just see Peter thinking, yeah, God's talking to me now. What about you boys? Can you see that? Guys, I know you can. You can understand that. You got information not everybody else has, right? You've got it all together. But that's not usually a good thing when our pride gets a boost, does it? When our pride's inflated, there's usually a fall coming. My own personal experiences have told me that. History has told me that. I've seen it with others, not just Peter. Often our pride leads us to walk in the flesh is the problem. When our pride gets a boost, we begin to walk in the flesh. This isn't going to turn out good for Peter, so let's, let's read on. Being the teacher, Jesus needs to needed to help the disciples understand what it meant to be the Christ, because Peter said, you are the Christ, and that, that answer is 100% right. And being the Christ came with certain privileges, right? I mean, that's a, that's a high level. This is somebody they've been waiting on for a long time. 
So we would assume that the Christ would have certain privileges such as daily manicures and pedicures, right? A person that's important. Um, speaks to a lot of people, that's important, you know. He's got people waiting on him all day as he lounged down by the Jordan River, right? He's sitting there on his lounge chair with an umbrella and as the sun rises and sets, they're moving that umbrella to keep him in the shade. You know, y'all aren't seeing that picture either. No, I don't either. Probably doesn't have any first mates to bait his hook for him when he wants to go fishing either. Probably had to do that himself. Yeah. What does the scripture actually tell us is the reality. Jesus began to teach them, verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's not the picture you would think of somebody with this kind of power and authority, is it? You know, you first read this and you think, did I miss something? This doesn't sound like the anointed king coming to establish his kingdom. Of course, you know, I say all that in joking. We know that the plan of salvation and it's to benefit you and I, we know that it has to take place. But this wasn't exactly a top secret plan. It's recorded throughout the Old Testament. We can see it there. We know it's there. But the, Jesus knew that the disciples didn't thoroughly understand that plan. That's why he's having to take the time to explain it to them. And he explained it multiple times. He told them this, and they never really 100% grasped it. This is where our hindsight really comes in and gives us a benefit here that they didn't have. And Peter's response to this teaching shows us how little he understood about it. In verse 32, we're told, Jesus spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See what happens when our pride gets a boost? Here's Jesus rebuking the teacher. I mean, I'm sorry, Peter rebuking Jesus, the teacher. Verse 33 says, But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So Peter's rebuke of Jesus earned himself a pretty stern rebuke in this case. And I can't imagine being humbled any faster than to have Jesus look at me and tell me that the words I just spoke came from Satan himself. That would would truly give pause. I'm not sure you could shrink away fast enough or crawl under a rock fast enough in that case. But I want to take a moment here to really look at, at what's happening because what this is is an example of that spiritual war that we fight. The spiritual war between our, our flesh and our spirit and serving the Lord. It's a real battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul discusses the battle between our flesh and our mind. In verse 3 he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We can't not live in these physical bodies that we have. But that's not where we want to truly fight the battle that we're in. We live in physical fleshly bodies, but the spiritual war that we're engaged in is not rooted in these fleshly bodies. In verse 4 there in 2 Corinthians 10 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So if we're not going to fight this battle on a physical level, we can't use physical weapons to fight the battle. Paul directs our attention to considering weapons that we can use in the spiritual battle. So what weapons do we use? Well, in verse 5, he says, Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So that's the first thing he points to, is that we need to disregard, or you could say discard, as in throw in the garbage, anything that goes against your knowledge of God. So anything that we know, anything that we think, any thought that we have that goes against what we know about God, we discard it, we get rid of it. 
But in order to do that, he continues bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How can we discard those thoughts if we don't take time and assess each one of those thoughts? Every thought that we have, we have to stop and evaluate it. Where did it come from? What's its purpose? Is it inspired by God or is it really rooted in our own flesh and serving Satan? The spiritual war is rooted in our hearts and our minds. Therefore, we need to carefully consider each thought that we have. The best picture that I can offer of this is for years working in the industry, we have fire extinguisher training to fight a fire. And if you've ever read the instructions on how to fight a fire with a fire extinguisher, there are usually two or three steps. You pull the pin, squeeze the handle, and aim the hose at the flames or the base of the fire. The base of the fire, right? Not the flames. You aim it at the fuel. What's the source of the fire? If it's wood or paper or, or whatever that is, you aim at the source of the fire. When you do that, the fire goes out, the flames go away. Now, those flames can do a lot of damage, no doubt. You think of a fire in a forest rising up into the dead limbs and trees, setting it on fire. But if you just keep spraying out those limbs, the fire's still burning below it. It's going to keep going up. That's, that's the, what happens when we try to fight the spiritual battle on a fleshly level. We try to fight the symptoms. We've got to go back to the cause, which is always spiritual. It's always a spiritual issue somewhere in our lives that we need to fight this fire. And that always begins in our minds with the thoughts. We can't act on a thought until we have the thought. If we control our thoughts and which ones we act upon and which ones we don't, then we control our actions. It's the first step. So we have to take every thought into captivity. In Ephesians 6, Paul lists the spiritual weapons he used. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. To rely on these weapons took faith in God as opposed to having our faith in carnal weapons or carnal methods in some cases. However, these spiritual weapons are the only weapons that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that he's talking about. Now, even as Christians, it can be really tempting to rely on or, or even admire some of those carnal weapons that are out there in the world today when we go to fight that Christian battle. So how, how, what does that look like? You know, we just had this list and we would all read those and we would all agree, absolutely, this is what I need to do, but, but what other options are they? Well, let's look at the belt of truth. Instead of the belt of truth, many people fight with manipulation. Instead of just being honest and, and living a life based on the truths that we know, we try to manipulate situations that lie before us or others into doing what we want. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, many fight with the image of success. Instead of the shoes of the gospel, many fight with smooth words. Paul talked about that. He didn't bring smooth words. He just shared the gospel. It was more powerful than smooth words ever could be. Instead of the shield of faith, trusting in God, many fight with the perception of power. And it's a perception because we don't really have a power on our own, do we? Outside of Christ, we have no true power in our own. Instead of the helmet of salvation, many fight with lording over authority. Say, Lord, in authority over others, abusing power. Instead of the sword of spirit, many fight with human schemes and programs. Instead of simply trusting God to work through us or trusting the spirit that speaks to us, we try to come up with our own methods, our own ways of accomplishing things. Some of the areas where we struggle the most in trusting God and abandoning our own carnal methods are in our marriages. Husbands and wives fulfilling their roles as outlined in the Bible. It's often difficult to trust, isn't it? That's why we have a marriage conference coming up. We're taking the time to look at those. What does the Bible say about marriage so we can bring them to the forefront and apply them to our lives? 
in raising children, according to the Bible. There's multiple arguments out there about how to raise children. You can read volumes of books, but we really only want to read one book to learn that and apply those truths. In serving, sacrificing our own desires to serve others with our time, our gifts, and our finances. It can be difficult to trust God when, we come, when we're called to serve. We often make excuses, as I talked about last week. Our salvation. How many of us at times still catch ourselves trying to earn salvation? Trying to in some way impress God with something that we're doing. We have trouble trusting God with our finances. We find ourselves spending money on worldly possessions instead of investing it in eternity. And patience. We all have trouble trusting God with patience, don't we? We all want things done right now. Think about when was the last time God did something before you were ready? Probably not too many things God got to before we were ready, right? We need to wait on God's timing. When we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, we fight the spiritual battle at the spiritual level. And Paul finishes out his sentence there in Corinthians. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now last week I discussed those excuses for not helping someone that's, that's right in front of you in need of help. Some of the excuses that may have been offered by the Levite and the uh, priest. Some of the characteristics that all excuses have in common that we talked about were they're all worthless. They don't benefit anything. They waste time. You could be doing something good while you're offering up that excuse. They produce no fruit. That's biblically how we're told to measure things, isn't it? By the fruit that it produces. Excuses never produce fruit. And they're often a distraction to the real work at hand. We try to distract from what we should be doing to, to something else. But if excuses are so empty, then why do we use them so often? And we all become guilty of it at times, offering up those excuses instead of true service. Well, often, I believe we use excuses when we fail to be obedient to something that God's called us to. God's placed something on our heart or, or plainly shown us a person in need that we're capable of, of helping. And instead of helping them, we offer up excuses because we don't have the compassion or we're not willing to make some sort of sacrifice in order to help that person as the Good Samaritan did. So what it boils down to is excuses are simply attempts to justify our disobedience. So how do we counteract that? Simply be obedient. If we answer God's call and things He's placed in our lives, if we obey that calling, then there is no disobedience. There's no room left for disobedience. At times we know we've done something wrong, but we try to justify ourselves by offering up excuses. We just need to be mindful of that. We need to be aware. We need to ask ourselves, am I being obedient or am I making excuses? I know at times it's very convicting to ask that question in a situation where we're praying about doing something or, or praying about going somewhere or some situation. You know, oftentimes that's the question I ask. God, am I resisting this because I'm offering excuses? Or is it really that you don't want me to do this? Or, or vice versa, whatever the case may be. But oftentimes if we're honest with ourselves, we're offering excuses instead of being obedient. Especially when making decisions. Our attitude should be, not my will, but yours be done, right? That's what the example Jesus gave us in the, in the ultimate decision that he had to make of going to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. So you should consider every thought, bring it into captivity, and evaluate it to ensure that those thoughts that you act on actually lead to obedience. Those are the only thoughts that we want to act on. We want to discard the rest of them, throw them in the garbage. And you should certainly consider every thought and evaluate it to ensure you act on it. When we're obedient to Christ, we are serving God. 
When we're obedient to Christ, we are serving God. When we act in obedience, we punish the disobedience. Or I like the way the King James Version reads, revenge all disobedience. A little bit stronger word there, revenge all disobedience when we're obedient. In 1 Chronicles, Solomon is instructed to know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. So again, here we see that idea of being obedient in our service to God related to the condition of our heart and mind. That obedience in serving God and, and being loyal to God is rooted in our heart and mind. It said, serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. We always need to be willing to be obedient. Now back to our scripture in Mark, why we, we took that time in Corinthians. In rebuking Jesus, Peter, we're told, was not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. He allowed himself to get focused on the physical world, the physical desires that he had, and not on what God had put before him. I mean, how else could he have been rebuking God himself? Peter revealed that his mind was focused on the physical world as well as on the short term. He was focused on the here and now. I know we never have that issue. We never think about the here and now. We're always heavenly focused, right? It's never a distraction for any of us, but, but it's in the Scripture. We need to talk about it, okay? Peter was focused on his own desire to see, own desire to see Jesus establish his kingdom right here on earth and right now. He couldn't wait. Peter and probably the rest of the disciples were more focused on what they wanted than what God wanted to accomplish. So Jesus, being the faithful teacher, he's asked these questions, he sees where they're at, realizes he needs to do a little more teaching, right? So as we pick up in Mark 8 and verse 34, when Jesus had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So Jesus has gathered a group of people that includes the disciples here as well as others, and he begins to teach to this crowd. And his teaching is addressed to whoever desires to come after me. So that's the first point that he makes, whoever desires to come after me. Now all this crowd is gathered around and following him, so we would assume that that means everybody, right? But not necessarily. You know, when people get focused on the world, their desires aren't necessarily the, the same as what they should be. So this implies, whoever desires to come after me, it implies that there is a choice to be made. We have a choice to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. It's a decision, a conscious decision that we have to make. This is part of that free will that we're given. And again, we're seeing that the personal aspect of the individual's relationship with Jesus plays a critical role here. We see the reality is that many will choose not to follow Jesus. There were plenty of people that want the blessings, you know, the miracles, the healing, the fame of being a Christian. But they don't want the sacrifice that goes along with it. They just want the association of being associated with the Messiah, especially in Jesus' time. We see many today that are offended by the name of Jesus. In fact, there's many of these offended people that go out and start their own cause just to argue against God and Himself. 
There are many out there that simply want every mention of Jesus removed from society, from every area of the public. They don't want Jesus' name mentioned outside of closed walls and closed doors so it doesn't influence their society. It's a type of hatred that's just, it's even hard to imagine that, that hatred for people from a group that was taught to love. But it exists today. We have plenty of people that profess to be Christians, however their lives look nothing like Jesus. That's an important question. It's why it's so important that we evaluate our relationship with Jesus because we want to look like Jesus if we're going to call ourselves Christians. So here, Jesus addresses those that desire to come after Him. In essence, Jesus is saying, if you want to come after Me, here's what you need to do. Then He lays out three parts in the Scripture. Three steps we could break it into. Let Him deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow Me. So the first of these three steps is deny Himself. And notice that Himself there is a lowercase h. So that means He's not talking about Jesus. Deny Himself. Step two, take up His cross, again with a lowercase h. We're not to take up Jesus' cross. And step three is follow me. Now that's a capital M, so now we're seeing Jesus implied there. So deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow me. So let's look at each one of these steps. The first step, deny Himself, requires that one take inventory of their priorities and their motives. Their, their priorities and their motives. See, sometimes we do things, but our motives aren't right. We've all known people to do that, but we can be just as guilty. We can do something simply because it's the, the cool thing to do, but our motives are all wrong. It can sound righteous, but in truth, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. We need to ask ourselves, what are our priorities in life? This could include fame, money, reputation, possessions, maybe just an easy life, void of any responsibility. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? To have a life with no responsibility whatsoever. We could just coast through that. But we cannot serve our fleshly desires and a heavenly Father. Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You must choose one to serve. For example, serve God or serve money is what Jesus is saying. And he continues on, Therefore I say to you, not worry, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus asked that question to help us refocus on the big picture. To get off of our own desires, our own needs, our own food, our own clothing, our own flesh, literally. Life also includes our spiritual relationship with our Creator. And that's why we ask that question. You know, what is our relationship with Jesus like? Our spiritual life will continue long after our physical life as we know it here on this earth. It's far more worthy of our thoughts. It's far more worthy of our time and consideration. And Jesus continues on and says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his statue? Now, have you ever met a person whose career was a professional worrier? No, you can't get a job being a worrier. Why? It doesn't produce anything, number one. Number two, we're all worriers. We all worry about things we don't need to worry about. Nobody's going to pay us to do it, right? We don't need to worry. The first thing that we need to do is deny ourselves and turn it over to God. Let him, let him worry about these things for us and simply be obedient. When we trust Him with everything in our life, as I've already talked about, then we don't have to worry. There's nothing to worry about. Simply follow Him in obedience. 
The first step that Jesus gave us here in order to follow him is to deny self, to put your own personal fleshly desires aside. Rid yourself of the bondage that your flesh in this world placed on you. See, we don't often think of it that way. What's happening when we're putting our flesh first is that becomes bondage. It holds us and keeps us from serving God. It keeps us in a place where we have to serve our flesh and we're not free to serve God. Free yourself of excuses that keep you from answering when the Lord calls you. See, when we cling to those excuses and we value those excuses that we've came up with, it stands in between us and our obedience to God. So now that you've freed yourself from the chains of serving your flesh in this world, we can take a look at the second step that Jesus gave us back in our scripture in Mark. The second step, take up his cross, requires one to turn to God for their purpose. It's the first thing we have to do. In order to take up our cross, we have to understand what that represents. And as I've already mentioned, it's important to recognize here that it's a lowercase h. See, God created each one of us with a purpose. A cross, you could say. He created each one of us with a purpose here that we're to carry out in our life. We're not instructed to take up Jesus' cross. He's already carried his cross. He's fulfilled his role. We're not here to fulfill his role. We're here to fulfill our role. I'm to take up my cross. You're to take up your cross. And those aren't the same crosses either. We were each created as a masterpiece for specific purposes that God ordained in advance. What God told Jeremiah was, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nation. Well, that's the truth for each one of us. He knew each one of us before he ever created us. He had a purpose for us before he ever created us. And these are powerful words. These are strong words. We think we're just aimlessly wandering in life trying to figure out what our purpose is. We don't need to do that. There's, there's not a need for us to take that burden on ourselves. What is my purpose? I've got to figure this out. What am I supposed to do? Our creator has that plan all before he ever created us. He put plenty of thought into that. In these words, we can clearly see that Jeremiah was no accident. Neither are we. We're not an accident. We were placed here in this day and this time for a specific purpose. I've heard many people say they just look forward to what lies ahead because they know, they understand this, that God put me here for a purpose. They can look forward with eager expectation to what tomorrow and what next week holds. When you view it that way, it takes the worry and the burden away. To know that God created you and gave you what you needed for this time, for your purpose in life, it should be freeing. It should take away the worry. It should take away the concern, any concern that we have. God designs each one of us and puts certain talents and skills into our life that we're going to need to be successful for the purpose he's called us for. And that brings us to the third step. Jesus says, follow me with a capital M. Not follow self, but follow me. That requires us to put our focus on Jesus. So we started out with, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, requiring us to put away our fleshly and worldly desires to release ourselves from those chains, take up his cross, take ownership of the spiritual gifts that God has granted to each one of us, recognize that we were created for a purpose. Then he says, follow me. Now we turn our focus to Jesus and allow him to lead us in using those gifts in a way that glorify him. We need to do something with those gifts. With these gifts comes the responsibility to use them according to the will of the one that gave them to you. As Paul encouraged the Romans that they present their bodies a living sacrifice. Remember that word sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
When we each exercise our individual gifts according to God's will, we see that group of individuals known as the church, working together in harmony for the mutual benefit of everyone and bringing glory to God. It's the way He designed. You know, at times we overlap and share the burdens. At times we come together to prop one another up. I think of Peter and Paul and John and how they traveled here and there as the Spirit led at different times to different places to minister to different people. And then at times their paths crossed or overlapped for a time period and they journeyed together. At other times they circle back to check on the spiritual health of the congregations and to rebuke in some cases, exhort in others and disciple all at the same time. Each carrying their own burden, their own cross, each exercising the gifts that God had given them. In order for the church to accomplish this successfully, we must focus on Jesus to lead and direct us. We exercise all these gifts with a love that only comes from Christ. So in verse 35, back in our text, says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's important to take a look at that because really the truth is the only way we can keep our life is to give it away. Who do we have to give it to? When we're saved, who do we surrender our life to? We surrender to Jesus. We surrender to Him. Because if we look at these two questions that are asked, if we trade, the whole, we trade our soul and get the whole world, what happens to the world in the end anyway? It all burns. It all goes away, right? Why would you trade your soul? Why would you trade your life for something that has a short-term fuse on it? It's going to expire. It's going away. Only the kingdom of heaven has that eternity. Then he asked the same question, really. The, the focus is the same when he asked the opposite. What would you give for your soul? If you have lost it, what would you give? You'd give everything. But the reality is we come to that place where we realize the only way that we can save our life is to entrust it to Jesus. We have to trust Him with our life in order to save it. And it's what verse 37, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You'd give anything. You'd give anything for your soul once you've lost it. But the only way to hang on to your life is to lose it, is to give it away, to give it to Christ and entrust Him with it. There's no other alternative leads to an eternity in the presence of God. That's not a politically correct answer, you know. <laughs> Certainly not what the world wants you to hear or even see. In verse 38, Jesus continues, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a date and time known only to the Father that Jesus will come back. He is going to establish his kingdom on this earth. We're just not there yet. Even Jesus himself didn't know that. Didn't know when that date would be. But it's important that we know that. We talk about the cross. We looked at the cross and taking up our crosses. It's, it's important to recognize what that cross truly represents. On that cross is the place where Jesus sacrificed His own body, His flesh, to accomplish a spiritual purpose. He sacrificed His own flesh on that, that day on the cross to serve for the needs of others. And that's really where the sacrifice came in. So we took communion last week. That's what we're reminded of. That we remember His flesh, His blood that was sacrificed. All for the needs of others. What did He gain on that day? 
He did that out of a love for you and I. That was His purpose in doing that. So when He tells us that we need to take up our cross, that's what He's pointing to. Is he's telling the disciples, you have to pick up your cross. That's what He's calling us to, is a life of sacrifice. We have to sacrifice our own worldly desires, our own worldly need, not needs, our own worldly desires, pursuits of happiness that we define. We give those up so that we can serve one another, so that we can be there for others at different times as we're called. In the Calvary magazine that I mentioned earlier, they're on the back table. There's a story in there about of South Sudan. If you haven't done so, I'd encourage you to pick those up. There's only so many, but take those and read them. To read out of there, it says, For three weeks this summer, far-reaching ministries recalled more than 300 chaplains to their training base in, in the mule for refreshing, refitting, and re-equipping. The men received medical help. Many have malaria and typhoid fever. They were fed beans, corn maize, and meat to regain some of the 20 to 30 pounds they lost serving in the field. These are chaplains. Okay. One night, Wes gravely addressed the men. To quote him, it says, Many of us have fallen and many more will. I've done the math. One in eight of us is going to die for the gospel. Now I want you to go home, tell your wives that you love them. Pick up your children, tell them that their daddy will always love them. Try to explain the calling of Christ on your lives. The response in the room wasn't one he expected. Wes said they all stood up and cheered. It hit me that they considered dying for Christ the highest calling of this life. It's easy to read these stories and think, yeah, this is a group of people somewhere I've never met doing something I don't understand. But see, for Wes Bentley, I've stood in a room with him. I've stood in a room with him. I've worshiped the Lord for hours with him. I've prayed with him. Saw him at Pastor's Conference a few years ago. And the stories he shared were incredible. You know, to know that that's what God's calling him to do is, is, is touching to know that I've stood in a room, he's a real person, that I've met in flesh and blood, he's just not a picture on a page. This article takes on slightly different meaning for that reason to me. Paul instructs us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And then a few verses later he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. This requires putting the needs of others first. And that's what these chaplains are doing in the South Sudan. That's their plan to stop the violence in their country is to take the gospel to the whole country. Think about that. That's their plan to stop the violence and the fighting is to take the gospel to the whole country. And they're dying in the process. That's how they're fighting their war, a spiritual war. And they're dying in the process. Serving Jesus is very personal. When we look at all the ministries that are involved here, that's why we do that. People come in early, and I'm not going to name the ministries because I'll miss too many of them. There's numerous ministries here, many behind the scenes, where people come in early, they stay late, they serve, they come in during the week, they do things, all to serve this community, all to serve on Sunday so that we're blessed by the time that they've spent here. And while we begin to get uncomfortable when this sacrifice becomes personal, when God calls us to sacrifice, it becomes, it becomes personal, it becomes uncomfortable. But it was very personal for Jesus. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Going back to the story from South Sudan. Sean Stone, the executive pastor of Maranatha Chapel in San Diego, California, described the chaplain's hunger for God's Word. 
One day while talking to Chaplain Paul, he put his hand on the man's back. He stated, my hand was on fire. His temperature was 105 degrees, Sean recalled. Sean, uh, Paul, however, insisted he was fine. Sean later learned that every day before Bible study and worship and the scene that's described in the magazine is basically three to four hours of worship a day and the rest of the day was filled with Bible study as they were being discipled. He said, before Bible study and worship, Paul went to the clinic for full-blown malaria and typhoid fever treatment. He was smiling and worshiping, not complaining. So before his full day of worshiping the Lord and Bible study, being disciples so he could go out and take the gospel to the country and probably die, high odds of dying, he went in for his typhoid and malaria treatments. The chaplains, Sean noticed, didn't want to focus on their hardships. They want to share incredible stories of men and women coming to know the Lord. They want to talk about Jesus, he observed. They are truly living out Philippians 1.21, for me to live... For, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I believe that and teach that, but these men live that every day. They live it every day. You know, we plan missions trips both local and, and international for this very reason, to go out and be a blessing to others. We sacrifice our own time, our own resources, our own comforts in many cases to go out and serve others. Whether it be Atlanta, Jacksonville, out of the country, Honduras, Peru, Nigeria, I just learned this morning, I didn't know that our missionary family has just gone through malaria. They've all suffered through malaria here recently. Have you considered that Jesus took 33 years away from heaven to go on a missions trip? Have you ever viewed him in that way, that he was a missionary? Jesus left his home in heaven for 33 years to go on a missions trip. To pay the price for our sins. To purchase our salvation. Took, took the cross up himself. He sacrificed himself in that instance. This kind of sacrifice, allowing God to guide and direct the use of our time and our resources, it's really what differentiates the Christians from the Gentiles. The Gentiles serve one another to get something. The Christians do it to honor somebody, to honor a sacrifice that's already made for us. As a Christian, we should welcome this in our lives. We should look for the opportunity to serve somebody else as we've been served. We should welcome God into our lives. Quote in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's the one we should welcome into our life. That's the one we should allow to work in our lives. Why? Because He can accomplish what we can't accomplish. But it requires sacrifice. That's why the title for today's message, our service always requires sacrifice. Serving always requires that we give up something of ourselves for others. But Jesus modeled that more so than anybody else ever can. The fruit from his sacrifice more than anybody else can ever produce. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.